This is an audio sermon recorded at Highway 71 Church of Christ in Alma, Arkansas. We are Christians seeking to worship God in spirit and in truth. We would love for you to worship with us at 1030 on Sunday mornings at 1808 Highway 71 North in Alma, Arkansas. I want to begin by saying how thankful I am to be given the opportunity to be here for my wife and I to be able to spend this special time with you. We don't get out and visit very much, and so we're thankful for the opportunity. And after Clint comes and speaks for us, then we feel like we have to pay back the favor. So uh, he does what I do. Whenever I go somewhere and speak for somebody, you always got to get one to bring back home with you. And so, but. You know, we're grateful to be here, and it's always a pleasure to be around, around you folks. Uh, we were able to come over last Sunday for the graduation ceremony. Congratulations to all the graduates and for all the hard work that I know that all of you grown-ups put into making that happen. And so uh, we were, we were uh, thankful to be able to experience your hospitality and to, as the Apostle Paul said, rejoice with those who rejoice. So we're, we're thankful for that. This morning for a little while, I'd like for us to consider the subject of the tolerance of Jesus. We're going to look at some scriptures this morning, some texts that are going to be familiar to us, but I want us to take a fresh look at them in order to help us to better understand the tolerance of Jesus. You know, we live in a culture today that is referred as pluralistic. We have very many different religious beliefs, very many different ideas and philosophies about life, very many different approaches to lifestyles and things like that. And as a Christian voice in a culture like this, we oftentimes are speaking against the culture and, uh, and speaking, trying to speak the truth of God's Word. And so a lot of times whenever we speak messages that the world does not want to hear, we're often reminded of the tolerance of Jesus. You know, how that Jesus sat with publicans and sinners. How that Jesus engaged with the adulterous woman and did not condemn her. How that Jesus said that we're to love our neighbor as ourself. And so this morning we want to look at those what I call the tolerance text of Jesus. Text that we as Christians are referred to a lot of times by people in the world who disagree with the positions that we take against uh, cultural beliefs and ideas that are not biblical. And to whenever we hear these, uh, these examples of Jesus and Jesus' supposed tolerance, we understand exactly what the Bible says. You know, a lot of times the world uses the Bible whenever it's convenient for them. You hear a lot about the second commandment, love your neighbor as yourself, but the world never talks to us about the first commandment, love the Lord thy God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. <laughs> and so it's important for us to be, uh, whenever we hear these things, that we see beyond the surface and we can understand the deeper meaning and the deeper teaching so that we can fulfill our responsibility in this world as Jesus fulfilled His responsibility in this world. So whenever we look at, first of all, a definition of the word tolerance. Tolerance back in 1828. Now, why are we going back to 1828 to define this? Because I want to show you an example of how that the meanings of words have changed over time. And we see that a lot in our culture today, how that definitions of words are being changed by, by different groups of people. And if you, can if you can control the definition of terms, you can control the discussion. And so it's important that we look to understand the truthful meanings of words. And really, in fact, the word tolerance is not a word that's used uh, in the Bible. We have words like long-suffering and forbearing and, and words like that. 
but tolerance is, is the word that we're focused on this morning. And so, well, I want to, in 1828, Webster defined it in his dictionary, the power or capacity of enduring or the act of enduring. Whenever you think of enduring, do you think of something that is pleasant to you? Do we have to endure things that are pleasant? Do we have to endure agreeable things? No. When we see the word endurance, it implies that it's something that's unpleasant. Then maybe it's something that we don't agree with, but rather that it's something that we're not going to accept, but for the time being, we're going to endure and persevere through whatever the circumstance might be. But what I want us to notice is in this definition of tolerance back in 1828, it implied something that was not good. But whenever you fast forward to 2015 in Webster's Dictionary, this is the definition. Willingness to accept feelings, habits, or beliefs that are different from your own. So it's not about enduring something that you don't like or you don't agree with anymore. Now tolerance is about being accepting of things that you don't agree with or that you don't believe that we're going to accept feelings and we're going to accept habits and we're going to accept beliefs that are different from our own. And that is the modern day understanding of tolerance. Tolerance has become synonymous with acceptance. And so whenever people tell us as Christians we need to be more tolerant, what they're in essence telling us is that we need to be more accepting. So that, yes, we believe that Jesus is a way to the Father, but if somebody wants to believe that Muhammad is a way to the Father, we need to be accepting of that. We need to be willing to accept that feeling and that habit and that belief as something that is just as legitimate as our belief that Jesus is the way to the Father. In all of the different lifestyles that we see, that people are wanting us to accept, as Christians, we just can't accept them. And that puts us at variance with our culture. And then the culture tries to lecture to us about how we need to be tolerant like Jesus was. And so again, we're going to look at the tolerance verses this morning, and we're going to see just how tolerant was Jesus. How did Jesus interact with his world when he encountered people that had feelings and habits and beliefs that were different from his? Was he willing to accept those, or did Jesus work a different way? Because we want to be the way Jesus was in this world. And if Jesus was acceptant of all of their habits and their beliefs that were different from his, then we want to be that way. But if he wasn't, then we don't want to be that way. We want to be like Jesus. These are the tolerance verses that we talked about. Jesus eating with the publicans and sinners in Matthew 9, verses 9 to 13. Jesus and the woman taken in adultery, John 8, verses 3 through 11. And then Jesus teaching the golden rule, love thy neighbor as thyself, Mark 12, 28 to 31. <clears throat> so we want to look at each one of these because here's the modern day understanding of each one of these texts. Matthew 9, 9 through 13 that Jesus was accepting of everyone, their beliefs and their behaviors. Jesus sat with publicans and sinners. And so by Jesus sitting with publicans and sinners, somehow we are to infer from that that Jesus was accepting of all of their feelings and their habits and their beliefs. Is that what that means? That the fact that Jesus was sitting with publicans and sinners, that he was accepting of, the, of their feelings and their habits and their beliefs? <clears throat> 
whenever Jesus was speaking with the woman that was taken in adultery. We find there that Jesus showed that it's wrong to make moral judgments and say something is wrong because we all sin. And so since Jesus did not condemn that woman that was taken in adultery, then we today should be very understanding of our own personal sin and not speak out against things and against people that have feelings and habits and uh, beliefs that are different from ours because that's what Jesus exemplified with the woman taken in adultery. And then whenever Jesus taught that we're to love our neighbor as ourselves, that we're to love one another the way that Jesus teaches us and live and just let live. Let's just don't bother people and just let people live the way that they want to live. And just accept their habits and their feelings and their beliefs because after all, if we did that, wouldn't it make for a much more peaceful world if we just live and let live? Well, if Jesus did that, then that's what we want to do. But if Jesus didn't do that, then we want to be sure that we live the way that Jesus did. So let's look at our first text, Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 to 13. And we're going to go through each one of these texts, and we're going to look at them, and we're going to see just exactly what was Jesus doing and what was Jesus trying to accomplish in each one of these texts. The Bible tells us as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, Follow me, and he arose, and he followed him. Now it happened as Jesus sat at the table in the house that many, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard that, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And so Jesus ate with publicans and sinners. Well, what all was going on there? Well, the first thing that we want to notice is that these publicans and these sinners, they came and sat down with him and his disciples. And so it wasn't like Jesus was going out into the world and mingling with tax collectors and sinners, giving approval to their lifestyle. You know, sometimes I've heard people say that maybe they want to go to, to the bar and do karaoke with their friends. Well, if you're a Christian, you can't do that. Well, Jesus ate with publicans and sinners. I don't think Jesus would go to a bar and do karaoke with his friends. That's not what this is teaching. Jesus had a reputation. And because of Jesus' reputation, people came to him. And that's an important lesson for us is that we want to have the type of reputation that this type of people will come to us. And that's what happened. Jesus had just called a tax collector into his uh, group of men that were going to be apostles. And so immediately they saw that, okay, here's a religious leader. What's a religious leader doing taking that tax collector? And so immediately they saw something different in him. And so they gravitated towards him and they came and they sat down with Jesus because of his reputation. And they asked the question, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? You know, as a disciple of a teacher, if a teacher was looked to be out of order, they would always go to the disciples 
and try to shame the disciples into answering for their teacher or their leader. And so that's why they go to the disciples. Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? This picture does not fit into our paradigm of how religious leaders are supposed to be. Religious leaders don't sit with publicans and sinners. In fact, publicans and sinners in that day did not want to be around religious leaders. But we see them coming to Jesus. But whenever Jesus heard them say that, he interrupts the discussion with the disciples. And then he begins to speak as to why publicans and sinners were sitting with him. The first thing that we want to notice about Jesus as he's interacting with these publicans and sinners is that he acknowledges their condition publicly. He acknowledges their condition publicly. Notice what he says. When Jesus heard that, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. What's he saying about these publicans and sinners? He's saying they're sick people. They're sick people. Well, how were they sick? They weren't sick physically. They were sick because they had feelings and they had habits and they had beliefs that were not right. They were sick spiritually. And Jesus made note of that. So he's saying, if you want to understand while I'm sitting with publicans and sinners, let me frame it for you this way. People that are well don't need a physician. But people who are sick, and so he goes on to say, but go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. He's saying, this is why I'm sitting with publicans and sinners. Not because I accept their feelings and their habits and their beliefs, but because they're sick people. And because they're sick people, I'm going to sit with them and I'm going to interact with them in such a way to bring them to repentance. What is repentance? Repentance is a change of mind from bad to good. Well, why would Jesus want to change them? Why wouldn't he just be tolerant of them and accept their feelings and their habits and their beliefs as they stood then because they were wrong. And because they were wrong, they were sick. And because they were sick, they needed to change. And so whenever we're told that we need to be tolerant like Jesus because Jesus ate with publicans and sinners, that's what we want to do. We want to be like Jesus was when he was with publicans and sinners. First of all, he drew publicans and sinners to himself because of his reputation. That people who needed help came to him for help. And then whenever they came and they interacted with him, he didn't give approval to their lifestyle. He didn't give approval to their sinful ways and their sinful beliefs, but he interacted with them in such a way that they would repent, that they would change. And so whenever we're told that we need to be like Jesus because Jesus ate with publicans and sinners, now we know what that means. It means that we're going to interact with publicans and sinners. We're going to interact with our culture in such a way to bring about 
repentance, to bring about change. <clears throat> now again, whenever you look at the life of Jesus, Jesus was an inviting person. He invited people to him. In Matthew 11, he said, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you will find rest to your souls. That's why those publicans and sinners came to Jesus, because he was meek and lowly. Because they knew they could find rest in Jesus. They knew that if they went to the religious elite and the religious hierarchy of that day, they would be condemned, they would be beaten down, they would be given excessive religious burdens that they could not bear. But in Jesus, they found someone that they could truly bring their persons to for the change that they really desired. A change of heart a change of life, a change of feeling, a change of belief, a change of habit that conforms to the will of God to find the rest that comes from fulfilling and doing the Lord's will. I want to be tolerant like that, don't you? <laughs> don't we all want to be tolerant like that? That people will just come to us and we can sit down and we can interact with them and interact with them in such a way that we bring about repentance and change in their life through the power of God and His Holy Spirit. So the idea that Jesus ate with publicans and sinners, the idea that that just means He was just accepting of everyone, that's not what that teaches. But rather we see different. That Jesus was accepting of everyone. You see, we have to draw that line and we have to delineate between accepting the person and accepting the beliefs and the behaviors and the habits of the person. You can accept the person and reject the habits and the beliefs if they're not right. And that's what Jesus did. He accepted the people, but he didn't accept their feelings and their habits and their beliefs because he interacted with them in such a way to bring about change and to bring about repentance. He sought to change their beliefs and behaviors from bad to good. So as Christians in our world today, we want to be inviting people that sinners will come to that we can have an interchange with them and lead them to repentance. That doesn't fit the paradigm of modern day tolerance, but it fits very clearly the work of Jesus while he was here on the earth. Next, John 8, verses 3 to 11. Jesus with the adulterous woman. <clears throat> it says, The scribes and the Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery, and when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses and the law commanded us that such should be stoned, but what do you say? This they said, testing him that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. The first thing that we want to notice about this woman is that in John's narrative, he quotes, and correctly so, that they said, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. So this woman was a sinner. There's no, no question. I mean, it, she was taken in the very act. And so the idea of identifying sin or not identifying sin, in this narrative, up front, the sin is identified and there's no denial and there's no question about the sin. The judgment was very clear. This text is about 
Well, what do you do with the sinner? And we see two very opposing views. You see the view of the Pharisees, how they wanted to deal with it, and then you see the view of Jesus. And so again, this isn't about whether uh, adultery is a sin or not. This was a sin. The law spoke against it. The law prescribed a penalty for it. And so that's not at issue here. And so they say to Jesus, but Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned, but what do you say? This they said, testing him. And so these Pharisees had no concern for this woman. This woman was just a pawn. She was just a pawn that was being used by the Pharisees to try to accomplish the real intent of this whole situation, and that is to test Jesus and to find something to accuse him with. And so Jesus, in this instance, could have dealt in a number of different ways with these Pharisees. But the way that he chose is to teach us about how to deal with someone who is in sin. <laughs> so he goes on to say, So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Then those who heard it being convicted by their conscience went out one by one, beginning with the eldest even to the least. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. And when Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? And has no one condemned you? And then Jesus said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. And so after they were confronting Jesus and the woman was taken in adultery and they were insistent as to what the law said, knowing that Jesus was going to be merciful and compassionate and trying to use his goodness against him in putting him at variance with the law so that they might have a reason to accuse, Jesus just calmly and simply says, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. What does that mean, really? <clears throat> well, it can't mean that sinners can't make judgments. Because under the old law, the prescription for adultery was the stoning of the adulteress. And whenever that penalty was carried out under the old law, I'm sure that the people that were throwing the stones weren't perfect people. You see, really, the only stone throwers there were were people with sin. There were no perfect stone throwers. And so whenever we see this, let he who is with, among you without sin, let him throw a stone at her first. I don't think that Jesus is talking about just sin in general. I think that Jesus is talking about sin in this situation. That there were people who were complicit in this. As if to say, okay, you're saying that this woman is the guilty one and all of y'all are innocent in this situation. So, okay, so whoever's innocent in this situation, you throw the first stone. This woman was probably framed. She was probably set up. Because if you'll notice under the old law, not only was the woman to be stoned, but the man was to be stoned also. But they didn't bring the man. They just brought the woman. Where's the man? Well, the man may have been standing in that crowd of people saying, let's throw stones at her. I don't know. I'm just speculating. 
But whenever Jesus says this, he's not saying that we can't say something is wrong because we're all sinners. The fact that this woman was wrong is already established. What the question is now is how do we deal with her? And so whenever Jesus says this, okay, if you're not complicit in this matter, if you're innocent in this matter, then you go ahead and you pick up stones and then you throw at her. Well, the Bible tells us that he stooped back down on the ground and then in verse number 9, those that heard it being convicted by their own conscience. That group of men that brought that woman, they knew what they did. You know, they all looked around. They all knew what they did in this instance. And they all had the goods on each other. So they weren't going to pick up a stone and throw. So they just, being convicted, they turn and they walk away. <clears throat> and so now here's Jesus with the adulterous woman. So we see, first of all, the way that the Pharisees wanted to handle this is not the way to do it. In verse 10, Jesus raises up and he says, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? Now notice the statement here. Has no one condemned you? What does it mean to condemn? To condemn means to pronounce a final judgment upon. When you stone someone to death, that was a final judgment. So Jesus asks, where are they? And he says, she says, they're gone. There's no one here, Lord. And then Jesus says to her, neither do I condemn you. Now what's that mean? Does that mean that I'm not going to tell you that your adultery is not wrong? No, that doesn't mean that. He's saying, you're a sinner and you've sinned. But I'm not going to condemn you for that sin. Because in his nature, in his character, he's merciful, he's compassionate, he's loving and forgiving. So does the fact that Jesus is merciful, compassionate, loving and forgiving and not condemning mean that this woman can go and persist in her behavior of adultery? No. Because notice what Jesus says. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. And so what was Jesus doing with this woman? Was he being accepting of her feelings and her habits and her behaviors? No. Jesus was interacting with her in a merciful way to produce a change of life in her and gives her the exhortation, you go and you sin no more. In other words, saying you go and you don't commit adultery anymore. And so Jesus' interaction was not an acceptance, but rather Jesus' interaction was such a way that it produced change in this woman's life. And I think that's an important message for us to understand, is the power of mercy to change lives. Again, we think mercy and compassion is just a, a, a tacit acceptance a patting somebody on the head and saying, oh, that's okay. No, that's not mercy and compassion. Mercy and compassion confronts sin head on. Jesus confronted this woman's adultery head on. But he did it in a way, not to bring about condemnation, but to bring about life and wholeness. 
And I'm sure that this woman walked away so touched and so moved by the mercies of God that from then on she lived a life of holiness because of the mercy that was shown to her. You know, as Christians, it's important for us to understand the power of mercy and compassion. That in our boldness and in our zeal and in our fervor to speak against sin, that we don't do so in such a way that we shield the mercy and the compassion and the love of the Lord. And that's what Jesus did then. Remember what Paul said in Romans chapter 12. He goes through Romans chapter 1 all the way through chapter uh, 8 talking about the salvation through the gospel and, and, and the grace of Jesus Christ. And then he gets to chapter number 12 and then verse number 1 he says, Therefore I beseech you by the mercies of God. And then what does he do in chapter 12? He tells them, be changed. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. And then he starts saying, all right, do this, do this, don't do this, don't do this. Well, Paul, what's the reason that I would want to change and do this and not do this? It's because of the mercies of God. The fact that God could condemn you, but he didn't. And it's the same way with us. In our interactions with people, We want to show to them the mercies that even though the truth states that they're sinners, we're still willing to accept their person, but not accept their habits and their beliefs and their lifestyles and speak and interact in such a way that we can say to them, go and sin no more. And so Jesus showed it was wrong to condemn others because we're all in need of mercy. However, he used his mercy as a motivation for change in the life of the woman. So what are the two things that we've seen so far in Jesus' interaction with the publicans and sinners and Jesus' interaction with the woman? Was it all about acceptance? No, it was all about change. And then last, the tolerance of Jesus, Mark 12. One of the scribes came and having heard them reasoning together, perceiving that they had answered them well, asked him, what's the first commandment of all? Jesus answered them, the first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. This is the first commandment. And the second is like to it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There's none other commandment greater than these. And so whenever they were asking about the greatest commandments, Jesus said the first is love the Lord thy God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then the second is like to it, love your neighbor as yourself. And as Christians... We are lectured to by the world that we need to love our neighbor as ourselves, And in that understanding, the worldly understanding of love is that we need to be more willing to accept the feelings and the beliefs and the habits of people that differ from us. That that's the loving thing to do. That's how you love your neighbor. How do you love your neighbor? Have you ever thought about that? I got on the internet and just typed in, what does it mean to love your neighbor? There is all kinds of different ideas and teachings about how to love your neighbor. <laughs> But there's only one teaching about how to love your neighbor that really matters, and that's the teaching that the Lord gives us. I mean, if you came to me and asked me, Jay, how can I love you? I'm probably going to tell you all of the things that I like and I want you to do. Well, you can make me some chocolate no-bake cookies. You can take me to doze for steak. You can take me crappie fishing. If you do all of those things, then you'd be loving me. 
Well, of course, because those are all the things that I love. But are those all the things that I need? I might need somebody to say, hey, Jay, you're wrong. I'd rather have the cookies. But I know what's needed. And so whenever the world tells us, well, we're your neighbors, Christians, love us, they're naturally going to tell us, love us the way we tell you to love us. And in fact, you'll see a lot of information about this. One of the things that you need to do is have conversations with your neighbor. And let them tell you. And we do need to talk to our neighbor. We do need to try to come to an understanding of the experiences of our neighbors. But understanding those experiences, not to just to do what they tell us to do so that we can accept their habits and their beliefs and their, uh, their behaviors, but that we know how to properly apply God's Word to their situation. That's why we want to have a conversation with them. See, notice what Jesus says here. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, think about your Bible for a moment. If I say baptism, what do you think? Well, this is kind of out of nowhere, but it'll prove a point. Baptism, okay? If I just say baptism, you probably think Acts 2.38, Mark 16.16, 16, Acts 22.16, uh, Romans 6. In other words, whenever I say that, immediately Bible texts come to your mind, right? Okay. To a Jew in this day, whenever Jesus said, love thy neighbor as thyself, there was a Bible text that came to their mind. They immediately thought of Leviticus 19 and verse number 18. That's the only place in the Old Testament where the phrase, love thy neighbor as thyself is used. And so whenever Jesus said, love thy neighbor as thyself, they immediately thought Leviticus 19 18. Just like we would think baptism, Acts 2.38. <clears throat> so whenever Jesus said, love thy neighbor as thyself, their biblical reference was that. And so their understanding about loving their neighbor as their self then was going to be rooted and grounded in that text. Just like our understanding of baptism is going to be rooted and grounded in the text that we're familiar with. And so whenever Jesus said, love thy neighbor as thyself, he didn't go through a whole big long explanation about how to love the neighbor because they already had one. They already had one. Leviticus 19. Let's look at Leviticus 19. And look at the text. As Jesus, or rather not as Jesus, but as the Lord explains. Love thy neighbor as thyself. Verse 11. You shall not steal, nor deal falsely, nor lie to one another. So in other words... If I'm going to love my neighbor as myself, I'm not going to steal from them. I'm not going to deal falsely with them. And I'm not going to lie to them. Because I wouldn't want anybody to steal from me and deal falsely with me and lie to me. When you're being honest with your neighbor, that's loving your neighbor as yourself. Verse 12. You shall not swear by my name falsely, nor shall you profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. So I'm not going to swear, I'm not going to swear by the name of the Lord to my neighbor and then swear falsely by the Lord's name. That wouldn't be a neighborly thing to do. And so whenever I properly use the name of the Lord in the oaths and, and, and agreements that I carry established with my neighbor, I'm loving my neighbor as myself. You shall not cheat your neighbor nor rob him. The wages of him who is hired shall not remain with you all night until morning. So when I don't cheat my neighbor, I'm loving my neighbor as myself. 
You see, whenever you read all of these explanations about what it means to love your neighbor, they just get all flowery and fancy and, and, and just all of this stuff. is. But really, if you just... I mean, if my neighbor comes over to me and says, did you borrow my whatever? And I did, and I tell him, I did, and I'll bring it back. Well, I'd ask him first, but this... And I do that, I've loved my neighbor. I'm dealing honestly with them. You shall not curse the deaf, nor put a stumbling block before the blind. You shall fear your Lord. I am the Lord. Not curse the deaf. Take advantage of people who are weak. Take advantage of people who are handicapped. That somebody who is deaf, that I just get in there and just tell them all, call them all kinds of bad, ugly things, and I do it because I know they can't hear me. That wouldn't be a neighborly thing to do, would it? I don't put a stumbling block before the blind. I see somebody blind walking that I put something out there to try to make them follow. That wouldn't be a neighborly thing, would it? So if I'm seeing somebody that's blind and they're walking and I go by and I clear things out and I, I'm loving my neighbor as myself. It's that simple. You shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor nor honor the person of the mighty. In righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. When I'm fair in my judgments with my neighbor... In other words, if a person is poor, that I don't give them any special uh, judgments. I expect the same right and wrong from them that I would expect from anybody else. And I don't honor the person of the mighty. I don't let them slide by with things because they're mighty. I expect the same right. I'm, just, I'm fair and I'm consistent in my judgments and dealings with everyone. That's loving your neighbor. You shall not go about as a talebearer among your people. You shall not stand against the life of your neighbor, I am the Lord. You won't go around spreading lies about your neighbor. In this instance, talking about going to, to court, going as a false witness against your neighbor, that wouldn't be very neighborly, would it? To spread rumors and, 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 to, and to charge falsely your neighbor. And so whenever I'm fair and I'm consistent with my neighbor and I don't tell bad things on them that aren't true, I'm loving my neighbor. You shall not hate your brother in your heart. You shall surely rebuke your neighbor and not bear sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love the Lord your God, love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. What is it that the Apostle Paul said about love thy neighbor as thyself? That that was the summation of all of the commandments. Love your neighbor as yourself. So, don't commit adultery. If I don't commit adultery, I'm loving my neighbor as myself. Don't steal. If I don't steal, I'm loving my neighbor as myself. That's what loving your neighbor means. Loving your neighbor is just doing to your neighbor what God says to do for your neighbor. But our culture today says loving your neighbor is accepting beliefs and habits and behaviors that you don't agree with, that you don't think are right, that that's what loving your neighbor is. And again, I like to say, don't take a lecture from somebody about how to love your neighbor if they're not willing to lecture you on how to love the Lord thy God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. Because they're just using the love thy neighbor as a verse of convenience to try to advocate for things that aren't right, just, and holy. One of the things I want to point out in this text 
Verse number 17. Part of loving your neighbor is you shall surely rebuke your neighbor. Now rebuke does not mean that you accept habits, beliefs, and behaviors. Rebuke means you stand against habits, beliefs, and behaviors. It means that you say you are wrong. You see, loving your neighbor as yourself includes not accepting everything about your neighbor, but being willing to rebuke your neighbor when your neighbor is wrong. The word rebuke means to correct, to argue, to convict, to dispute, to reason with. And as Christians in our culture today, whoop, get it back up here. We do that, or at least we should be doing that. And the world is going to tell us, well, if you're going to argue with us and dispute with us, you're not loving your neighbor as yourself. What does the Lord say? The Lord says you're loving your neighbor as yourself. If you're wrong, don't you want somebody to tell you you're wrong? Exactly. But to the people of the world, loving your neighbor as yourself means you don't tell them that they're wrong. Why? Because they don't want anybody to tell them they're wrong. That's why I say, when we look at what it means to love our neighbor as ourselves, it's not a matter of asking our neighbor, okay, how can I love you? God's already told me how to love him. And if I love my neighbor in a way that's different from the way God says to love my neighbor, then I'm not keeping the first great commandment, and that's to love the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. But here's the thing. If you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, you're going to love your neighbor as yourself. So we are to love one another the way Jesus teaches us. However, loving one another includes correcting your neighbor when they are wrong. <clears throat> and so whenever we look at all of these tolerance verses, what do we see that is consistent in each one of them? Is it acceptance of beliefs and habits and behaviors that are different from ours? Or is it interacting with people in a merciful, compassionate, loving way to bring about change and conformity to God's will. That's what those verses mean. So whenever the world tells us Jesus ate with publicans and sinners, they're telling us just be quiet and accept us as we are. What we're hearing is, I want to be merciful and compassionate to you to bring about repentance and change in your life. Whenever people of the world tell us that Jesus said, let he that is without you first cast a stone. Jesus didn't condemn the adulterous woman. Therefore, you don't condemn us and you leave us alone and let us go sin all we want to. What we're hearing is Jesus was merciful to that woman. He acted in such a way towards her to bring about a change in her life. Whenever the world tells us love your neighbor as yourself and that means to be quiet and just accept our habits and our beliefs and our behaviors whether you think they're right or wrong, what we're hearing is what the Lord said to rebuke our neighbor and not to suffer sin to come upon us to participate and be complicit in that sin. 
And so we see the result of Jesus' tolerance is repentance. We see the result of Jesus' tolerance is sin no more. We see the result of loving thy neighbor as thyself. Jesus' tolerance, rebuke and not bear sin. So what does the tolerance of Jesus look like? Does it look like what we see today? What is preached to us by the world? Now think as we move forward in this world and as we encounter things in our culture that we should not question ourselves or doubt ourselves. Are we really right for speaking out? We should never be made to, to feel like that we're, we're not being like Jesus. But whenever we, we live a life, uh, a, a reputation of, of mercy and compassion, a reputation of truthfulness, a reputation of genuine love and care for each other, that in everybody that we interact with, we always work not to make them feel accepted, but to make them holy, to make them righteous, to make them Christians, to make them lovers of God and servants of Jesus Christ. That's what our mission is. And the world's not going to accept us for that. You know, times have been good. But those days are over, I'm afraid. We live in a culture that used to, uh, used to uh, endorse our common sets of beliefs and morals and, and values, but not anymore. And so it's important that we become more confident in our voice today. And don't let people cause us to think that we're intolerant, that we're bigoted, or anything like that. We just want to be like Jesus. And being like Jesus, what is it that Jesus told His disciples? They hated me, but they're going to hate you. They're going to hate you. So, and as James says, you know, we can be friends of the world and enemies of God. We can't be both. And so, we're at a time where we need to gird up our loins. Where we need to gird our hearts with truth and be ready to stand. And be like Jesus. I appreciate your attention. You've been a tremendous audience. We have a song, I believe, that's selected. If there's someone in the audience who's not a Christian and you desire to be one through obedience to the gospel, I know that this congregation stands ready and willing to help you and to assist you in that, to further you in your understanding of Jesus and what you need to do to be saved, and then carrying out that act of obedience, being washed in the blood of Jesus <clears throat> by baptism. If you are here and you are a Christian and maybe something that we've studied has touched your heart, uh, a word, uh, something that has convicted you and you feel a desire at this time to express to this congregation a specific want, a specific need, and, and call upon their prayers for strength and help, we'd be glad to help you as we stand and sing the song selected. We hope you have enjoyed this message recorded at Highway 71 Church of Christ. If you have questions concerning this message or would like to set up a study, please call 479-647-2658. May God bless you.